she'll be staying for one of my spells. Well, I always have a secret um, feeling that I'm really a fake or something. A phony. You know how people feel about themselves. Well, I knew I wasn't going to go to the gas chamber because I hadn't done anything wrong. <laughs> Just beat the devil out of it. Come on in. Set a spell. January 21st, CDC confirms first U.S. coronavirus case. January 31st, World Health Organization issues global health emergency. February 12th, my husband and I are asked to adopt a baby due in June. February 16th, we broke the news to my mother that she would be a grandma. February 25th, CDC says COVID-19 is heading toward pandemic status. March 1st, my mother passes suddenly. No services due to rising public health concerns. March 9th, my employer sends us home to work just until this virus is under control. March 11th, World Health Organization declares COVID-19 a pandemic. April 29th, our baby is born during extreme COVID protocols. She is six weeks premature and spends two weeks in the NICU. May 12th, Death toll likely underestimated, Fauci testifies. May 15th would have been my mother's 76th birthday. May 25th, we bring Rowan home from the hospital. May 28th, U.S. COVID-19 deaths passed the 100,000 mark. June 22nd, study suggests 80% of cases in March went undetected. June 30th, a dear friend dies from COVID-19 in a Cleveland hospital. July 9th, World Health Organization announces COVID-19 can be airborne. August 17th, COVID-19 now the third leading cause of death in the U.S. September 15th, CDC reports on spread of COVID-19 at restaurants. September 23rd, a new, more contagious strain of COVID-19 is discovered. September 25th. Midwest states see increase in COVID-19 cases. October 2nd, my father dies. We attend service against our better judgment. October 19th, global cases top 40 million. November 11th, indoor venues responsible for much of COVID-19's spread. November 17th, Fauci highlights the need for long-term follow-up of COVID-19 effects. December 25th, first Christmas with Rowan, and without either of my parents. December 31st, U.S. falls short of gold to give 20 million vaccinations by year end. COVID-19 colored every aspect of 2020 and continues to change our lives on a regular basis. We all want to get back to normal without stopping to realize that normal has been forever changed. Everyone has adapted in one way or another, some appropriately, some with little regard for a public health crisis, and yet others who may have overcorrected in the extreme seemingly turning into agoraphobic hermits or trolls hiding under a bridge. As for my nuclear three-person family and I, 
we are mostly perceived in the latter group, much to the consternation of all those who have emotional claims to our child. There has been friction, hurt feelings, and in general, most of us just don't know the best way to navigate a global pandemic. There is no instruction manual for handling your shit during times like this. On the other hand, this isn't the first time I personally have faced a public health crisis. In fact, I was raised in one that directly molded and shaped me. In many ways, growing up in the 80s as a burgeoning homosexual was a long, dark walk through a train tunnel with the feeling that the light at the end was certain and horrifying death. It didn't always seem that dramatic at the time, but in retrospect, I can see clearly how traumatically the AIDS crisis served to forge the person I would grow into. Ryan White, born three years before me, dying three years before I would graduate high school, was one of the very first high-profile cases of HIV-AIDS, especially in the mainstream media available to me at the time. Ryan and I lived in the same state. On many levels, I could relate to him even though he didn't have my same-sex attractions. He was infected by a blood clotting treatment for hemophilia, but if Ryan White would be dying of this disease, and he wasn't even gay, what chance did I have to avoid the same sentence? This terrified me, and I suffered in silence, alone. During the 1980s, AIDS was largely stigmatized as an illness impacting the gay community because it was first diagnosed among gay men. In the USA, that perception shifted with the media focus placed on Ryan and other prominent straight HIV-infected people, such as Magic Johnson, Arthur Ashe, and the Ray Brothers. Although these cases were often framed as innocent against gay men who were seen as guilty subjects. The U.S. Congress passed a major piece of AIDS legislation, the Ryan White Care Act, shortly after White's death, which was signed into law by President George H.W. Bush in August 1990. The act has been reauthorized twice. Ryan White programs are the largest provider of services for people living with HIV-AIDS in the United States. Imagine it, a 10-year-old native Hoosier boy born to lower-middle-class parents with no formal education and a rather narrow view of the world around them. He loved to draw, but was encouraged to do manual labor with Dad. He played all the sports in elementary against his will, because Dad commanded it. When approaching dating age was told, never to bring one home... And even though Pops had a major stick up his ass about Asians in particular, he didn't specify which one was not welcome and was left with the impression only white girls would be allowed to the dinner table. Already realizing at this point that in ways which seemed to really matter, I was not like the other boys. I was entering a vastly lonely space in which I alone contended with the fact there was much to hide, or else. 
keep in mind, I'm speaking of my formative years. This was elementary school, summers spent at church camp, sleepovers with friends, bike rides with the neighbors, camping trips, Disneyland vacations, and visits to family in West Virginia and Alabama. In very real ways that mattered, I had a good childhood. But through it all, there was a deep, resonant humming. A bass rumble that grew in intensity every year, no matter how much I tried to ignore it. For all intents and purposes, my family was very, very normal. Of course, we had our own stories, and if truth be told, there are a lot of skeletons I could throw out of the closet. But overall, we were the average Midwestern American family. Dad, mom, daughter, and son, with a house in the rural suburbs where the windows could stay open and the door did not have to be locked. June 5th, 1981. The CDC publishes an article describing a rare lung infection, which would mark the first reporting of what would become known as Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, 1981. By year's end, there is a cumulative total of 337 reported cases of individuals with severe immune deficiency in the United States, 321 adults, adolescents, and 16 children under age 13. Of those cases, 130 are already dead by December 31st. May 11, 1982, the New York Times calls it GRID, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency, which only exacerbates public perception that this is a gay-only plight. October 9, 1984, the New York Times reports that new scientific evidence has raised the possibility that AIDS may be transmissible through saliva, it will be another two years before proof emerges that this is not the case. October 2nd, 1985. Rock Hudson dies of AIDS-related illness at age 59. In his will, Hudson leaves $250,000 to help set up the American Foundation for AIDS Research, AMFAR. Actress Elizabeth Taylor serves as the organization's founding national chairman. December 19th, 1985. A Los Angeles Times poll finds that a majority of Americans favor quarantining people who have AIDS. By year's end, the United Nations states that at least one HIV case has been reported from each region of the world. October 22, 1986. The Surgeon General issues the Surgeon General's Report on AIDS. The report makes it clear that HIV cannot be spread casually and calls for a nationwide education campaign including early sex education in schools, increased use of condoms, and voluntary HIV testing. April 19, 1987. Princess Diana makes international headlines when she is photographed shaking the hand of an HIV-positive patient in a London hospital. October 1987. A Gallup poll finds that 68% of those polled called AIDS the most urgent health problem facing the world. March 3, 1988. Ryan White, the Indiana teenager who has become a national spokesperson for AIDS education, testifies about the stigma he has endured as a result of having AIDS before the President's Commission on AIDS. 1989. 
Dr. Anthony Fauci, head of the National Institutes of Health's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, endorses giving HIV-positive people who do not qualify for clinical trials access to experimental treatments. 1993, the film Philadelphia, starring Tom Hanks as a lawyer with AIDS, opens in theaters. Based on a true story, it is the first major Hollywood film on AIDS. 1994, AIDS becomes the leading cause of death for all Americans ages 25 to 44. 1995, President Clinton hosts the first White House conference on HIV AIDS on December 6. I was not alone, and my story is hardly unique. In fact, it's rather boring to detail it for you. I only do so to assure you understand my already troubled mindset when I was suddenly being confronted with this new cancer that was killing all the gays. Gays? Was that what I was? Gays were men who liked other men. Well, then that did mean me. According to what little news coverage reached me, if I didn't stop having these feelings inside, then God was literally cleaning house and I would not be spared. In fifth grade, my parents sat my sister and I down to let us know they would be getting a divorce. I remember largely being elated there was a glimmer of hope that my life course would shift just enough that maybe this growing sexual panic inside me could be diverted, changed, or just go away with the change in scenery. Nothing ever came of it. They just kept fighting, and I kept bearing this burden with no hope of anything ever changing. Moving into junior high, there was never a tingly glance at another male in the shower or at wrestling weigh-ins that was not immediately followed with panicked guilt and fear. The guilt was a gift from God that confused me a very great deal. Why make me this way if you hate it so much? It would be like making redheads, then deciding they are going to hell if they themselves don't change it. The fear was the gift from the media covering a growing epidemic which clearly was coming for me. Enter art class. Finally, a legit reason to spend time with a sketchbook, paints, and whatever else the course had in store. I could not be told to go chop a new rick of firewood instead if that drawing was homework. Thusly, instead of concerning myself with a burgeoning sexuality of ill repute, I drew, I painted, I photographed. I followed artistic outlets in lieu of pursuing the carnal desires welling up inside. Those were buried, covered with concrete, six feet of dirt, and paved over. Maybe everyone else was getting their cherries popped, but mine stayed intact quite some time. Not out of a chaste desire to save myself for marriage, not out of respect for myself, not for any of the reasons espoused at youth group. I held on to my cherry for dear life because I was afraid if I didn't, I would die. 
As a high school senior, I was introduced to the first gay men I had ever consciously known, one of whom was HIV positive. It had finally struck home. Gay cancer was in my face, taunting me as if to say, See what happens when you're gay? Take a look at those lesions. Do you want those? See how gaunt his skeletal frame is? Do you want to be that thin? See how no one wants to touch him or give him a hug? Is that the life you want? The effect from all this and more was that I developed a lifelong love-hate relationship with sexual relations. Even to this day with my husband, I feel the effects. My sexual awakening was fundamentally entwined with a worldwide epidemic that erroneously but effectively communicated that it was coming for people just like me. There was no caution too severe. Stick to the rules without fail or it will get you. What was rule number one? Live like you already had it. Let me say again that my story is not unique. I was certainly not the only one of my generation to grow up with secret gay feelings amongst the outbreak of an epidemic. But it's not like we have a support group with a newsletter, so I don't know anyone else's story. My friends and I don't discuss this because we survived, so most days it's best not to look back. But for the purposes of transparency and maybe even spreading a wee bit of hope, I'm sharing this journey with you. The takeaway is this. Adjusting one's way of life, habits, patterns, and daily routines is difficult. Living your own life and making choices for yourself that benefit others more so than yourself is hard, but not impossible. Living not in fear, but with a profound respect for the health crisis is essential. Not giving up or giving in too soon is worth it in the long run. Loving your family from a distance so they don't die is sometimes necessary. Forsaking immediate gratification for longevity is prudent. Taking the crisis seriously and knowing without a shadow of a doubt that it can happen to you is how you survive. <laughs>